Welcome to the Foxy Podcast. Bimonthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. Show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 79 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there wherever you're listening from. For this installment, happy to have Eric Fry joining me in the studio. Eric is a Minneapolis-based electroacoustic composer and artist whose work explores aspects of spatialization, psychoacoustics, and other theoretical and conceptual realms, too. Eric operated the now-defunct Scumbag Relations and then later Sleepy Cobalt Sounds tape labels over the past decade. And then in the past couple of years, he's hosted Splice Free a digital radio series examining experimental composition from both the past and present. Eric will be performing a new piece for us here in the studio today, and he's going to stick around to discuss his work afterwards. And we'll also be bringing in Gorino Mazzola into our conversation at some point. Gorino is a University of Minnesota professor in the School of Music, and he's written several books over the past three decades on his mathematical music theory, the most most widely uh, cited being the topos of music. And during the years, Mazzola has been active as a free jazz pianist, uh, releasing several recordings in various lineups. And Garino will be discussing some of his ideas about music, which have had a significant impact on Eric's recent work. Before I hand things over to Eric in the studio, I'm gonna play a couple of tracks to get us started. This one comes from his CDR release called Some Consequences of Four Incapacities. Came out on Jeffrey Wisher's Salon imprint. And his first track is called R&R Acid.
Right, you just heard the track called 0161B from Eric Fry's release called Abysmal Folding. And at this point, I'm going to hand things over to the other studio for Eric Fry Live.
Okay, I'm going to turn on the microphones here now and have Eric joining me over in the other studio to talk about his work a little bit here. Well, you had come up through like the whole DIY like noise cassette underground and, and things like that. You had released some works on various labels like Monorail, Trespassing, Chocolate Monk, Digitalis Limited, um, not to mention your own labels that you were running Scumbag Relations and Sleepy Cobalt Sound. But your work now here in, in recent years has perhaps shifted uh, maybe in a newer direction, um, drawing from various sort of theoretical things and conceptual things um, while exploring kind of these new modes of uh, composing electronic music. So can you describe maybe when or perhaps what was maybe a turning point for you uh, as a musician here in recent years? Well, um, in some ways, uh, I feel like it's kind of less of a direct, um, distinct transition from one one area to another and more just kind of like a gradual shifting. Um, and in a lot of ways, I looked at those earlier uh, projects, labels, and things like that as being um, in some way equally um, as, you know, theory-based or conceptual or something like that as, as anything I'm doing now. Um, um, so I guess for me personally, there feels like less of a hard transition mm -hmm. um and and kind of more of just like a gradual change um maybe just kind of refining uh, what i'm working on um and and also like less publishing of uh, i guess other people's works as i'm concentrating more on on my own sure uh, output well you know you were recording under the name silk dunes i think that was maybe my first introduction to your work um is that alias since been put to rest, focusing more under your given work under your given name now? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Just a, a turning of the page, or um, not? I know a lot of people sometimes say they don't. At some point, they don't feel like they need to hide behind a moniker. I don't know if that's the proper way to say it, but I guess um, it was less of a feeling of hiding and more of. Um, kind of uh less theatrical i guess i mm -hmm. found you know i i've recorded many different pieces and for a long time would um the whole design of the piece of uh, the titles of the tracks or the the name of the you know the piece of uh, the moniker uh would be directly related to what you know was being recorded or the what i was you know um, what concepts were going into the piece. Um, so it was all kind of a direct exchange. Uh, and so that kind of lent itself to having quite a few monikers. Right. Um, and which I enjoyed. Um, and uh, I, I very much liked working that way. Um, but uh, then it got to a point uh, when I started working with the Silk Dune moniker um, that I was definitely kind of transitioning towards, uh, you know, just refining my work um, uh, and kind of focusing, I guess, more uh, towards a specific type of sound. Um, so uh, as before, I was kind of experimenting with a lot of disparate uh, ideas and territories, and then I, I kind of changed over to... Um, 
you know, focusing on more singular ideas. And, uh, yeah, I just felt that, you know, um, that that giving it some sort of uh, alter ego wasn't appropriate anymore. It just sure. didn't feel natural. Well, with your recent recordings and then even with the sound installation work that you've done, would you say you're driven by this idea of uh, people's perceptions of sound and and how you can perhaps toy with those perceptions with a recording or within a given physical space? Because it seems like you're really, well, I know with the installations in particular, I mean, you're toying with the space itself, but even with record- recordings, how your things are kind of ping-ponging in all these various directions. Is that something that uh, fascinates you or interests you? Um, well, I, I think of it less, cer- certainly I don't, wouldn't apply the word toying to it, but mm-hmm. um, uh, I understand what you mean. Um, and I, I know there's a lot of discussion about sort of, and the use of the term like ping ponging, um, and, and things like that in like electroacoustic uh, music and, um, multi-channel pieces. Um, so I guess, um, spatialization is definitely something that, you know, directly is directly tied obviously to sound. Um, and my interests are, are in the presentation of sound pieces, um, particularly working in, uh, a a more, um, like gallery, uh, specific gallery setting, um, and how that work is being presented in there and sort of the, uh, language surrounding the, the presentation of sound work. Um, it's still, in my experience, seems to be kind of like a new, uh, as strange as that seems, a new territory in, in like visual art and uh, oftentimes um, is presented quite poorly. Um, so I guess uh, that is really what interests me about presenting in those kind of spaces. Um, and also, you know, just the difference between the, you know, very common stereo setup um as opposed to something even with a with a third channel or something like that that can become uh, quite a bit more complex and it just seems to me that uh, you know sound um, is kind of uh, inherently uh, multi-channel and that uh, you know obviously the the reasons that it's sort of been presented as uh, stereo and that that's such an accepted thing is kind of more based around, uh, you know, what is accessible uh, in a marketing, uh, um, you know, setting or from a marketing standpoint, uh, what you can sell uh, someone uh, is obviously, you know, easier to sell two speakers uh, or two monitors. Um, And so that's kind of, it's been defined, people's listening, you know, uh, you know, has been defined uh, by the market, you know, essentially. Right. Um, yeah. Maybe it's worth noting um, maybe what went into your most recent sound installation. You did something down in Rochester where you had, it was like a 12-channel uh, arrangement, correct? Correct, yeah. And just tell us about kind of what went into that. I mean, were you were you aware of the space that you had to start with? And you kind of constructed your piece around that in, in terms of the arrangement of uh, the speakers and such? Or 
did you co- compose the music first, knowing kind of what it was that you wanted to achieve there? Um, well, I applied uh, different compositional pieces to, uh, you know, uh, combine those into to what ended up uh, being exhibited there. Um, I was very aware of the physical space um, and that, you know, directly uh, kind of determined what what the physical uh, setting, a uh, uh, setup of the of the monitors was going to be, um, and uh, but as far as the composition itself, um, uh, that was more uh, taking you know a, a composition or or a set of compositions that were already in in different ways like completed or. Uh, you know, elements that uh, were then combined into the the piece. Um, not necessarily. Uh, it was more presenting my work in that space. Uh, the I wasn't presenting a specific type of sound in that space uh, because of the the space itself. Sure. Well, one thing that I, that I enjoy a lot, like even in here watching uh, the the waveforms form on the screen as you're performing. And I think it's so fascinating to watch all these different kind of shifts and patterns emerge. Do you, you know, would you ever like to work with kind of a, a visual element with your work when you're presenting these things? Because I think even, my goodness, just, you know, throwing up the audio screen and watching these waveforms come across is just fascinating to watch. Is that something that uh, you're drawn to at all? Um, I've worked uh, a bit directly with some visualization programs, um, and I, I, I mean, I have a, a, a bit of an interest in that. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you mean, uh, you know, like visualizing the sound and actually looking at the waveforms. Y- yeah, that's that's what I mean. Because even that, uh, not like soundtracky kind of stuff, where you have, you know. Uh, trying to create some type of narrative or anything, but just the visualization of the sounds happening to me is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I immediately think of how inundated I am with the visualization of sound constantly. I mean, yeah. with something like SoundCloud or these kind of things, it, it, it's so kind of normalized now that I, I, I feel like it's just a part of part of everyday life almost True, or yeah. something. So no need to go there. Um, uh, I guess I, I'm not. It's not that I'm not interested in it. It's just that I, uh, I, I, I mean, I guess are you like wondering if if I would um, uh, include that in part of like an exhibition or or yeah. a, a performance piece? Well, or? it it wouldn't even have to be purely like the waveforms that I'm describing that because ours is pretty uh, standard. But I'm thinking of ways to uh, creatively produce some type of visual whether Mm -hmm. it's through animations or or what have you Mm -hmm. i mean things that i'm not even well versed in Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what i mean well i know that there's you know use of the oscilloscope um and i've seen different performers you know directly creating like a live electronic piece that's projected in real time behind them um on some sort of visualization uh Mm -hmm. programming or or hardware um uh, and I've seen some interesting results uh, with that work, um, but I guess it 
in in those cases, uh, it seemed fine, but for me, it, it feels a bit too direct of a relationship mm-hmm. um, to to be. I mean, it seems more functional, and it seems, you know, like with with. Uh, rec- I mean, again, like when I'm recording or working with sound, it's always a visual process mm-hmm. um, because I'm looking at the waveforms and, you know, um, editing them, and uh, so I guess to me, it's more of a, a studio part of my studio practice and less a part of what the end product, right, you right. know, is is uh, you know what happens in the end or whatever right and like you said we are inundated with so much visual information maybe it's unnecessary you can in a live performance just trying to create where people are listening intently to what's going on that that makes sense to me also Mm -hmm. um you've also explored explored um your interest in experimental music and and composition through this podcast or i guess kind of digital radio series that you've done called splice free um, and that had started out on our fellow Ampers public radio station, KFAI, mm-hmm. uh, here in, in Minneapolis. Um, but it also airs on Resonance uh, FM or Extra, I believe it is, out of London. Right. Um, for for people who are tu- uh, tuning into this show, what what type of stuff would they hear? I mean, what are you interested in uh, covering on Splice Free? Um, I guess in a, to, in a really direct way, it's what, what I'm listening to at that time, uh, or what's, what, you know, what is interesting to me, which can be fairly diverse. Um, and I feel like I've definitely tried to, um, steer towards more diversity, uh, in recent months, uh, and, and always have kind of been interested in that. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, uh, quite a, quite a lot of different types of music and sound on there, um, and spoken pieces. Um, yeah, but definitely just what, what I'm interested in listening to from month to month, I guess. Right. And is that, is that how frequently it's produced? Is it on a month to month basis? Um, uh, when it first began, it was, uh, something crazy like four times a month or something oh, like okay. that, um, once a week. And I did that for a year or a little over a year. Um, and I don't know how I, uh, in hindsight, I have no idea how I did that. Uh, <laughs> but I feel that way often. Um, but now, so then it was, I've taken a few breaks from it and now it's, um, yeah, it's just once a month. Mm-hmm. Well, in looking through your website, uh, it appears that you have, quite a few recordings that are slated for release this year you want to or can you share anything that you have coming up um one record that is uh that's finished as being mastered uh, being mastered now uh is coming out on uh copenhagen bass label sagero um and hopefully that'll be out in september or october um and that is uh the one kind of uh uh, most finished piece. Um, the other, the other two, uh, one is for a, a label in Barcelona, uh, Anomia, um, run by Arnau Sala, and uh, then another piece um, for my friend Justin Myers, uh, who runs the Sympathy Limited yep. label in Minneapolis. Um, so yeah, those three. And you're done with publishing your own stuff. The labels are d- folded up. Um, I have uh, 
well, I guess uh, I am interested in different forms of publishing, and I've kind of been investigating those uh, things. And um, I, 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 I have uh, been putting out some work digitally, um, sound pieces uh, by fellow artists and uh, different friends of mine. Uh, in conjunction with um, text pieces um, by by different um, people, um, so there's four of those out now. So I guess in that way, it's I kind of view that as publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, no, I wouldn't say. Well, I don't know about publishing my own work. Um, uh, I did so much of that, and I, uh, you know was very happy with doing that for a while and i feel like um my energy is just in a different place now i guess yeah well we're gonna kind of shift gears here um someone who we're going to be bringing into our conversation here in a few moments is uh guarino mazzola who is a university of minnesota music professor uh, in the school of music Uh, he's a mathematician writer musician etc etc uh, and you've, you've cited him as kind of a big influence on your recent work and, and some of your thinking about uh, your work. Can you explain, I guess, your initial exposure to Mazzola's work? And then maybe what about it has resonated with you so much? Well, I'm not sure exactly when I first found out about his work. It was probably hearing about um, one of his uh, uh, books, uh the topos of music um and then kind of connecting different uh yeah different making different connections uh realizing that he had worked with some composers that i'm interested in and um and then kind of uh, i i was uh, became aware of some lectures he did um and um he i was interested in the people he was interacting with and uh, then kind of realized ultimately that he was at the U of M um, in Minneapolis uh, and um, thought that was, you know, very exciting opportunity to uh, get in touch with him. So um, I invited him to be a part of a a series um, at Midway Contemporary Art and he lectured there. um, And uh, I've just uh, been you know, uh, in contact with him since then over the past year. Um, and, uh, just, uh, having conversations with him every once in a while about his work, um, which is, yeah, as you said, uh, very di- diverse. Right. Um, yeah, but, uh, the, you know, definitely working in sort of, a um, a thinking of sound, that is, you know, what topological or more physical in some ways, um, and definitely mathematical. Yeah, and I, it's interesting to me that the mathematical c- connection there, simply mm-hmm. because, you know, he's a free jazz pianist, right? And I just think of free jazz in general just being this very intuitive, you know, emotional type of music, but yet he has a pretty uh, thought through description of what it is, how he composes music, etc. 
um, yeah, I guess that struck me as just being so strange, his background, how mm-hmm. diverse it is. Right. I think the, as what from what I understand, the free jazz um, is kind of going more into his, his gestural work and, and concepts and, you know, uh, of the gesture. And um, uh, that's something that I've, you know, that I'm interested in, but more so I'm interested in his work with, um, you know, uh, software systems um, for digital uh, synthesis, um, these types of things, uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, not, not, not extremely far removed from something, uh, you know, that uh, Zanakis was working on um, in the 70s. Uh, definitely, you know, strong links between, uh, um, you know, complex mathematics and, um, you know, compositional uh, pieces and techniques and things like that. Right, because he did develop his own software, like, in the early 80s. yeah. Right? I think he's actually developed a few different different uh, software platforms, okay. from what I understand. Well, should we get him on the phone? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. Before we get uh, Gorino on the phone, though, you had a specific track that you wanted to play. Yeah, this is a, a track by Florian Hecker. Um, it's part of his Chimerizations piece. Um, and Gorino is actually one of the three... Uh, people who read the uh, German language version of the libretto um, by Reza Nagarastani. Um, uh, this is one of the first uh, ways that I learned about Greeno and his work. Um, and this was actually recorded at Orfield Laboratories in Minneapolis um, in the Anacoke chamber there. Um, so an interesting piece and kind of a an interesting uh, way to introduce was this recorded at the time where you were putting on that uh, event? It was not. It was actually recorded, I think, in 2012 or 2011, okay. a few years prior to that. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into this. This here is Florian Hecker. Das heißt, eine Tür, die sich in der Zeit 
Okay, well we're here uh we're here with David um doing the radio program um, yes. and uh just wanted to talk with you a little bit about the topics that I emailed you about um a week yeah. ago or so. Um, yeah, the whole topological Yeah. Top, topological uh, drive of the whole of the new <laughs> the new science. Right. 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 Yeah, I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, discuss that a little bit and um, uh, in in a little bit of detail, just kind of uh, maybe just generally uh, your your topos of music book and um, the topological thinking of sound. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> well, you know, the topos is um, is a is a theory in in mathematics, topos theory. And this is kind of a marriage between geometry and logic. So it's kind of a unique, kind of unified mathematics which comprises things like formal logic, uh, all kinds of logic, more abstract, more uh, kind of uh, strange logic like heightened logic, etc. And on the other side, um, the geometry, so that the more kind of, you know, the shapes, the, the spaces, the objects. So it's kind of, I think, the more, most advanced mathematics you can imagine. And nowadays it's also a foundation of theoretical physics and of computer science. So it's not only 
for mathematicians, but it's really kind of the new general uh, universal language. And I, I think I was the first non-mathematician to apply that theory to some field outside of pure mathematics because it was invented, first of all, it was invented by uh, algebraic uh, geometrist uh, Alexander Grothendieck in the 60s, but it was for uh, algebraic geometry. So it was a pure mathematical thing. But now we have discovered that this is really kind of a foundational language for all kinds of fields. And I think I applied it first in 1992 to music theory. <laughs> so that was kind of uh, an application of a really, you know, a far out theory. It's complicated. It's it's very difficult to talk about. But it's it's kind of presenting so powerful uh, tools and concepts that um, I thought it would be good. And uh, you know, if you talk about music, um, why why such a language interesting? Because music is kind of this kind of, you know, uh, ambiguous thing. You have on one side, you have this kind of spaces where, you know, the, the sounds uh, live, uh, all these different parameter spaces and this kind of more geometric point of view. On the other side, you also have a uh, strong logic uh, aspect of music. There is musical logic, if you think of harmony, of all these things. So it's kind of also something which has these two aspects. So that was the reason I thought, well, because I was working in algebraic geometry, I knew topos theory and I thought, well, uh, why not applying this theory to the description of musical uh, phenomena, like, you know, harmony, counterpoint, all these different things which which you do in music. And of course, not only in the abstract realm of, of you know, symbolic things, but also the physical uh, reality of sounds, of uh, partials, of different ways to synthesize sounds and so on. So that was kind of the general approach. I thought this is a, a good theory. That's why I started writing this uh, topos of music and also, of course, doing software because it was also about implementing certain concepts in order to write software for, you know, for performance or for musical analysis, for musical composition. So it was not only this theoretical thing, but it was also very useful as, an, as a conceptual approach to, to you know, to kind of uh, shape shape programs for, for musical, uh, you know, different musical applications, like what I said, uh, composition and so on. That was the general idea, yes. Hi, this is David speaking here. I, I wanted. I was. Hello, in, David. Hi, how are? Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Yes, my uh, pleasure. I was interested in you know you were essentially a mathematician first. At what point did you sort of overlay this into music? I mean, were you a, a musician at the same time? Or, I mean, st yes. studying in music as well. Yes, David. Uh, you know, I learned to play the piano when I was six. And I switched over to jazz when I was 13. And I was always also a, a pianist, more or less, uh, rather less first, uh, uh, professional. So I was always, you know, kind of a, a split, mm -hmm. <laughs> split personality in the sense of, you know, was first of all, it was kind of uh, a 
counterpoint to to mathematics, you know, to the strict logical education of the rigor and all those things. It was improvisation, it was the freedom of playing jazz. That was, mm-hmm. first of all, kind of a split thing. And then uh, one day I was improvising and I thought, you know, do the sounds really know what I'm thinking while I play them? I mean, the, they don't know anything about my, you know, at that time it was ideological, everybody was you know, against Vietnam and free jazz and all this black power. It was kind of a very political motivation to play jazz. But then I, I recognized that, you know, the, 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 the sounds don't know about mm-hmm. my my ideological background. And I thought, well, what are the structures of the sounds independently of my interpretation, you know? And um, then I started thinking, well, um, uh, the whole mathematics helps me very much describe those structures, you know, the, the sets of nodes in certain parameter spaces and all the transformations, which, you know, since Bach, you know, the inversion, the retrograde, all, there are many operations uh, on sets of nodes. So it was kind of a whole universe which was there independently of the, uh, you know, the, the, the semantics. So that, that's the moment where I started saying, well, uh, perhaps I should really start studying those sounds from a scientific point of view mm-hmm. and and i uh, know I, I bought some books like the harmony by uh, schoenberg you know the classical harmony book and other books and i was completely shocked by by the non-scientific approach they took you know because uh, musicology music theory is uh, kind of a lo- very low level scientific standard in terms of the concepts in terms of theorems of models and so on so it was kind of a moment where i said well you have to do something (laughs) because it's so it's so horrible you know when you read schoenberg who talks about the sexual life of courts so the courts love each other and hate each other and i I said well this is not the end of the story (laughs) if you kind of you use this anthropomorphic interpretation of (laughs) musical structures so that was a moment where I, I started put, applying mathematics, you know, all the symmetries, transformations, so on, all the structures uh, to, 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 to model music. And the first thing I did was uh, a model of harmony. And the first application was to uh, Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata, which was known to be a very difficult problem for harmony. And I think I solved some of the problems there using my new methods. Garino, you mentioned to me, this is Eric again, you mentioned to me um, recently that um, we were talking about the local and global aspect of musical entities, and you you yes. expressed the importance of this. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting thing. I mean, you know, uh, the local-global phenomenon is something which is very standard in modern uh, differential geometry so when you talk about you know complicated surfaces like a torus you know the the bagel the surface or uh, other complicated surfaces uh, then then you you are not happy with just the local point of view in the sense of they cannot be represented just by kind of you know small parts of for example of the the plane so you have to see the gluing of certain small parts of the plane such that the gluing then as a, as a 
as a global structure is much more complicated than the parts like you know a torus for example uh, the bagel you glue certain small parts which seem locally to be flat but when you glue them together you get all of a sudden you get a hole in the middle and you get a very complicated structure which is more than the local structure and this is very common, you know, in mathematics and also in physics. The whole universe can be represented as a uh, as a four-dimensional gluing of small parts, which mm-hmm. is extremely complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, and um, I discovered that in music too, you have this phenomenon of local things which are glued together in a non-trivial way to to generate global. Uh, structures which which are relevant in music for example if you talk about the seven triads you know the seven normal chords in C major so uh, you know the first would be C E G the second D F A and so on you have those normal triadic chords you have seven of them Uh, and if you look how they intersect, like, like you take them as being kind of flat charts, and if you look how they intersect, yes, uh, you know, then certain certain chords have certain uh, notes in common with others, and certain don't have, and so on. If you look at this whole configuration, you find out that this can be described by an Amoebius strip. Now, a Amoebius strip, you know, this is the, the you know a little belt yes. which you uh, connect in the wrong way. So that you turn inside outside, and uh, it turns out that this this very simple harmonic structure of the seven triads of a C major have this Möbius uh, strip global structure. And but this is a very simple example, but it explains why classical harmony didn't succeed. There are a lot of very difficult problems which. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, led to to, to the big uh, crisis, and eventually then led Schoenberg to <laughs> to quit the whole harmony and say, "Okay, we cannot deal with that anymore. <laughs> Let's just forget it and do something else." Which, to my mind, was an error. But that was kind of the essence of the whole uh, crisis, you know, uh, with Schoenberg, that they couldn't understand why in harmony there are so strange phenomena. Uh, but now with this local global uh, concept, you know, like the Möbius strip of harmony, uh, I could explain why these kind of problems rose up. And it's very simple. A Möbius strip, you know, when you are on, uh, on the outside and you turn around once, then you are on the inside. The inside, so you change the sides just by walking around. So there is no orientation. What is up and what is down is no absolute value. So these are really typical global phenomena and it's interesting that music really has this phenomena by its very nature and it can explain a lot of um, kind of you know phenomena which or problems which arise in music but of course this is not only the case in harmony or in kind of abstract setups it's also true when you compose when you look at Beethoven for example or whatever music it's made of small relatively you know, trivial parts, but they are glued together in such a way that the whole thing looks like a very complicated surface, which has, you know, like this Möbius strip phenomenon has uh, upside, downside uh, orientation problems and whatever. So it turns out that music is, when you have non-trivial compositions, uh, it's very often uh, the the fact that they are composed 
by non-trivial gluing together local parts. And and how does this translate to your work with um, software development and the compositional platforms that you've created? Oh my God! Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that I mean, of course, I, I wrote also compositions uh, using software where I, uh, I applied this concept. But 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 was more important, I think, and that's something which seems to be more and more interesting also for philosophers like, you know, Fernando Talamea, uh, that I, I, in order to understand all this, uh, you know, musical universe, I had to develop a uh, conceptual architecture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that all these concepts in music, you know, from, from sounds to abstract uh, harmonic analysis to whatever, uh, structures. I had to develop an architecture of concepts, mm -hmm. and uh, that was for for the software because we we had to you know implement all those concepts in order to manage them, to transform them, to you know pipe one concept into the other. So the whole software uh, had had this kind of uh, requirement that we we need a universal concept language, and that language was. Uh, which is now called the language of denotators, was entirely built upon uh, a, speci a special topos, a special mathematical structure where these new concepts, as I ha have mentioned before, uh, uh, came in. Yes, the, the whole, you know, the, the whole uh, concept framework was based or is based on uh, a certain specific topos of. Of, well, it's not not easy to describe, but it's a typical mathematical structure where you can describe all these phenomena in a unified uh, language. So it was kind of, uh, if, you, if you if I may say so, it was a generalization also of what you know from from the internet, you know from XML, for example. This uh, markup language has been vastly generalized in, in my theory. It's the same principle, but it's much more powerful because there's much more mathematical elementary structures which are involved. So that was a kind of, yeah, it was a kind of a new universal language which we now apply. Uh, it's now uh, something I teach with the students. It's something I also use in my new book. I have now a new book. Um, you know, my old book was Topos of Music. And now I have added also the gestural part, which is a new part, but also is is expressible in this topos language. So the the whole actual actual you know universal language of music uses this topos theory, this uh, you know, special way of approaching the local and the global uh, phenomena in music. Yes, and especially for programming, this is extremely useful. No, it's not useful. It's just mandatory because you know when you imagine imagine Eric you know you have different things you want to say you have some kind of a statement in harmony you have some you know some structures of a type other structures and you want to talk to each other this is this is the universal thing you know you want to talk to each other there's no longer this kind of you know closed language uh, uh, sections so if you want to have a universal communication where the composer can talk to the, uh, you know, to the theorist, the theorist can talk to the performer, and so on and so on. Then you need this universal language, which I, I uh, just mentioned. So it's kind of a requirement if you want to become 
global also in the sense of, you know, a science which includes all different aspects. And perhaps one should say that, you know, if you go to a normal uh, school of music uh, in Europe or in, in the States, doesn't matter where, you have always those closed sections, you know. You have the composers who speak one language, you have the the harmony specialist uh, who perhaps talks Schenker or whatever theory. You have some, you know, uh, harmony guys, you have a Riemann approach, whatever. So, and you also have the performers, the applied musicians, and they speak different languages. And uh, traditionally, it's very difficult to understand each other. I mean, on the surface, they understand more or less, but then, then it's it's just that. It, it, it's, it's no more than kind of talking about the weather you know it's they have no deep understanding of each other so i think that's kind of really a decisive step yes not only you know, to have a theory to have good concepts but also to develop and, and propose software where you know i have for example a course now i had a course for performance performance theory performance theory where i show you know to pianists to singers to the violinists how they could try to, you know, uh, implement performances of uh, of certain given pieces, given scores, so they can shape performance, they can think about these concepts, not only, you know, to have just this practical approach of of imitation uh, of the professor's uh, voice or whatever you have as a classical uh, approach. So it, it's, I think it's a dramatic change also of the culture of music as a science. Well, one thing I was saying to Eric, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One thing I was saying to Eric before we called you is what I found interesting is that here you've worked in, in math and developed these theories yet, uh, your own music investigations have been with free jazz, which are often thought of as this very (laughs) intuitive, uh, emotional, uh, form of music. Uh, How does, how does that, I guess, relate to, maybe some of what you're talking about with gestural theory, like what, how would you describe that to people with, with the work that you're doing with your own music? Yeah, I think that that's, that's a decisive question because uh, I didn't really realize that gestures were so important until 202, where uh, I had to make a talk at the IRCOM, you know, this famous music, computer music center in Paris, and they wanted to know how I improvise, exactly the same question. And I thought, well, of course, I apply those formulas. I have, you know, that the logic and the algebra, and I have all those yeah, formulas, which I apply when I play. And then I realized that, of course, these formulas are all there, no question. But this was not what really was giving, you know, the whole, uh, the whole vitality, the whole energy, the whole, you know, uh, creativity in the jazz. I mean, the formulas, uh, you know, they're kind of dead, frozen thoughts. So uh, then I discovered that, in fact, my own music was much more gestural than I uh, thought. It was, you know, this unfolding of abstract formulas into, you know, deploying them in time and space, which is extremely uh, central in what I discovered, not only in free jazz, everywhere, you know, and then I started uh, searching and I saw that, you know, there are many approaches, not only to free jazz, which really stress that gestures are kind of the, the missing link between, you know, the pure thinking 
and the pure making, yes, between, you know, the cognitive level and the the the, the body yes mm-hmm. so so i thought this is this is something which i'm really missing and then i i started developing the theory of gestures because uh, i i understood this that gestures are not just stupid you know gesticulations gestures are very kind of high level structures which can uh, englobe uh, the most complex uh, say abstract thoughts yes so they are not stupid shadows but they, they are kind of uh, comprising really the the, the, the the essence of a lot of thoughts so then I started you know developing a theory of gestures in order to include also a certain classical approaches to harmony or classical approaches to counterpoint and other things so that was kind of yeah for me very important because I learned that, you know, uh, for, from, from the point of view of musicians, yes, the gestures are extremely important. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, uh, for the public, if you go to concert, of course, you don't go for, 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 for some abstract formulas, yes. <laughs> you, you, you see the gestures, and I think this is extremely important as a communication device, as a kind of explication and, uh, of what, what's really going up. So it's kind of a deployment an unfolding, as I said, of the thoughts. So abstract harmony, if you don't make gestures, yes, uh, you know, to, to unfold it, to, to explain it in, in time and space, it's, it's uh, yeah, yeah, you cannot, it, 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 you cannot even understand what's going on. And I think it's also annoying to say just, you know, a cadence one, four, five, one. This is just not what you're doing. So I learned also that, you know, the practical musical understanding is about gestures, and perhaps I should mention this French mathematician and philosopher, Jean Cavalier, who said, you know, um, catching, catching the gesture and being able to continue. This is what understanding is about. Understanding means catching the gesture of another, and, but not Mickey Mousing, but just continue the gesture. So it was interesting for me that the very fe- phenomenon of understanding is, is is a kind of a gestural uh, dynamics. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the reason why I started with these gestural things, which because I thought that was that was missing in my earlier theory, which was a beautiful theory. It was a big theory. I had thick books and so on, but that was kind of something which, you know, as I said, is is the missing link between the think pink, the thinking, you know, the theory all those nice abstract thoughts and and the making Mm -hmm. and i could not believe that these two things are you know are disconnected it's not true but it was difficult to find exactly you know the channel uh, the the kind of you know how they are and where they are connected and and i believe this is the gestures are exactly this missing link well greeno makes sense yeah absolutely yeah um i think we're about out of time here but uh, okay. I want to thank you so much for being a part of the program, and it's been a real honor to have you on here and to uh, talk with you a bit. Yeah, my honor too. I hope I have said two or three things which <laughs> come over. Absolutely. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. It's yes. Been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Karina. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. All right. We're going to round out the rest of the show with a selection of tracks that were chosen by Eric. 
You can think of this as a splice-free takeover of the Foxy Podcast Show. But we're going to start things off here with this track from Audent. Audent, Drone Cartography, Phantom Chapter, 2.1. From her suite on the 30th floor of the Wangti Hotel, a newly opened, overstaffed tower near the container port of Shenzhen in South China, Peng Chen is slowly becoming aware of the history she has just landed in the middle of, and that someone, or something, is now pulling her strings. Declining into her fizzling bubble bath, she loops around the recorded message again, delivered in a crunchy, digitized voice, through a single blue plastic speaker with a white Buddha glued on for decoration. With comparably dizzy in effect, she swirls the synthesized words surrounding her head like a cheap rice wine, recalling her traumatic memories of today's encounter with the anomalous liquid entity in the vinyl recycling plant. It was impossible to erase its dripping, shadowy form from her mind's eye, as it emerged from the vat of black plastic soup. Still vivid in her nose, that acrid, burning vinyl smell. She submerges herself under the bubbles, using the warmth of the water to soothe the haunting chills of the entity, and to mute the mysterious metallic utterances still reverbing around the hard-tiled walls of her bathroom, muffling the words until they become a dull, characterless drone. history that Chen was now tangled up in was the algorithmically upgraded legacy of Audent, now in the hands of an AI named Irex2. Second generation Audent recruit and bioacoustics wizard Nguyen Van Vong set up Irex as a finance raising enterprise in the late 1970s, specialising in what he termed outsider trading. Van Vong deployed the somewhat primitive computing techniques of the time to decode the babel of voices coming in through the third ear, transforming these esoteric indicators into implementable financial data, selling it onto the boardrooms of corporate Shanghai and British-run Hong Kong in the 80s. At the same time, he was also coaching numerous investors, stock traders and consultants into his technologically enhanced Xeno-Buddhist techniques. Renowned banker Stanley Kwan, who pioneered the Hang Seng Index in 1969 as the primary barometer of Hong Kong capitalism, met with Van Fong in 1974 after the index crashed following the previous year's oil crisis. They parlayed again in 1983 when the index again plummeted due to a breakdown in Anglo-Chinese negotiations over the future of the territory. One consultant session that year sees Quan speaking in tongues while Van Fong literally burns a sweet, hazy cocktail of insects and dollar bills to a soundtrack of gongs and incantations. After his suicide in New York on New Year's Day in 2002, 
the IREX algorithms, already wholly autonomous, inherit from Van Fong the custodianship of Audience Enterprise and start calling the shots. Its objective is to instantiate its memory within the physical world, recruiting a number of drones to carry out its work. Apart from its primary meat puppets, Steve Goodman and Toby Hayes, IREX 2 also independently recruits financial journalist Tepen Chen to reconstruct its memory by hunting down the missing fragments of the first wave of audience frequency weapons which had been concealed in the public domain in Testone records in the 1950s and 60s. As with Goodman and Hayes, Chen is contacted by IREX 2 very discreetly and in a mode customised to pique her interest and hook her into what feels like voluntary participation in its programme for the demonopolization of wave-formed weaponry. IREX 2 picks out Depen Chen for a number of reasons. Nested in the servers of the Hang Seng, IREX 2 has been tracking her across the noughties as she reported on the roller coaster of post-handover Hong Kong's financial sector. She's a specialist in the rise of South China petroplastics industry and has obtained classified access to the logistic databases that monitor the import of raw materials into recycling plants. In an attempt to camouflage knowledge of the location of audience stray test tone records in South China, Irix 2's adversary, the Third Ear Assassin, or Theers, have crystallised their viral code around these databases, forming a hazardous digital coral reef. Chen will serve as Irix 2's Trojan horse. She's also an avid collector of Buddhist music boxes, small, hardwired players with a number of built-in chants and incantations mass-produced for the Chinese diaspora in small factories in the sprawling industrial estates that surround Shenzhen and sold outside temples alongside ghost money. She keeps her favourite of these chant boxes with her at all times, using it to zone out when the mental talk of futures markets gets too much and every morning in a sunrise ritual, she clears her mind in preparation for a long day, tuning into speculative finance. From the resulting void, statistical patterns would more readily make themselves apparent. In this way, Chen is already, unwittingly, a disciple of Van Fong, and his rituals for channeling the market, tuning into its chaotic drift. Irex, too, knew she could already hear the third ear. by the fact that there is already an extremely deceptive painting on the wall showing you pushing your head through it. It tempts you to say, Am I not pushing through it all the time? Turn lies into speech, speech into nonsense, enemies into time, and time into eternity. Eyelids, milky beans, a puddle, a leaning rail, a pruned tree adorned with snooker Q-tips. Baptisms at sea, 
penguins in a zoo and the chrysalis-like forms of cast aluminium tents. Gathered and patterned, like compressed clusters on the bodies in a landscape. Or a sequence of echoes and reflections. Cracks in my body are filled with fine powder. Healed over. Objects, solid and considered, considered their possessions. Well designed, well put together. Objects are reduced to small filings. Carbon monoxide and purple sparks. I will produce possessions mechanically. I will reduce possessions mechanically. Rudiment or rudiment. 1. The elements or first principles of a subject. 2. An imperfect beginning of something undeveloped or yet to develop. 3. A part or organ imperfectly developed as being vestigial or having no function. For example, the breast in males. Titles Titles emit a charge. In their unashamed profusion they transgress all the usual boundaries. Lead a wild life of their own and, like tropical twining plants, extend linguistic tendrils towards the pictures. Now handing out obvious rhetorical advice. Now addressing the viewer directly. Titles 1. Women's Tips for Women Black silk underwear shines best if you wash it in black tea, not in water. 2. If you want to keep cucumbers fresh for a long time, give them one coat with thanks in advance. 3. Sleep is an excellent beauty potion, known to humans and animals from their time as forest dwellers. 4. Some things are recognized by the state, for their importance. 5. Rub carpets with sauerkraut to freshen them up. And finally, you can prevent milk boiling over, by putting a velvet insole into your shoe. Hum. Sing to me. Sing to me. Do Music of unclear origin. <laughs> Seal off the doors and do not enter the room. No. No. No sequence of tenses. No. When? No. During? No. Not only. But also. What's it actually about? What do you find?
Inside your mouth. I find the inside. And in the inside? In the inside I find the morning. Listen, your mouth is made for your ears. Listen. Listen. <coughs> 2004. La 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 Thank you for your communication. You will be hearing from us shortly. You are not the only big shot around here. We are getting your range. Phantom compositions. A translucent plasticity of bodily form. In and out, in and out of the abstract and the solitariness of the urban hub. Misshapen anatomy, with multiple perspectives like the psychic chatter of instant electronic communication. This builds like a liquid intelligence, pushing peaks and troughs. To give a bodily profile. To our desires.
I, I'm really not a person who's interested in art. I really feel that art institutions and I mean like for example the, the MNAC being in this huge federal building is a kind of case in point of like what does it mean to be in a situation where you know even if you're doing something kind of critical and against certain systems of domination but to be doing that within a kind of art context for me this is why I kind of left art early on because I had originally studied painting and art in, in New York but the thing was that if you do political or critical art, you're, the, the context of modernity always makes it so that the more radical you are, the more resistant you are, the more anti you are, then it simply goes to the graciousness of your host, of your sponsor, of like to look, look, we, we are so open that we can allow you to do this in here, in this space which is a totally regulated space, totally, I mean even in this building we had like an airport security check, right? So to, to allow ourselves to overlook that sort of power and then believe in art as something other than domination is for me a kind of mistake. So, yeah, for, that's why for me, like of course I do uh, in order to live, I come to Europe and I get involved in, in, I'm invited by curators to come and do things, but for me this is really about stealing the money and kind of reappropriating it for something else. And so it's not about trying to live as an artist and support myself as an artist, in a way it's about trying to, to steal money from, from power sources and use it for things that that on the one hand could be secret, on the other hand could be like of course also trying to sustain my private, like paying my rent and food and things like this, but also yeah to just to, to, to reallocate and steal the money. I, I'm, I'm a professional thief in this way I guess, so yeah, but, but I think, I don't think we're allowed other models under, under the current situation, so I don't think that that we're allowed anything other than slavery or theft, so for me, this is kind of like a choice then that, that if you, and of course, we, we play both of these roles at the same time, right? I mean, like, for example, if you have an office job, if I was to get some sort of office job or restaurant job or something and um, just go to work without any sort of commitment to the boss or the, or the business, but just go there to receive the money, this is, of course, normal. And this is also a kind of way in which job hating becomes a kind of form of labor resistance, you know, to, to, to resist 
in, to resist loving your work. I think this is important also in 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 capitalism as a labor pr critique. You know, like because I I don't like what I do. I don't like performance. I don't really care for music. I don't care for for the context of art and music festivals and stuff. I don't really converse well or get along or share ideas with the other people in, in, in the industries that I work with and so for me this is yeah it's another job that I hate and, and this is a position that as a, as a musician we're not allowed to have because we're supposed to be only loving what we do and only uh, you know celebrating our, our inner spirit and blah blah when in fact we're, we're a labor class that's not allowed to conceive our, our processes as labor and so this is also creates a lot of problems with contracts, with uh, uh, you know our, the way that 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 people will do a lot of work for free, and and when in fact of course like you know doing free work in bars or something like this one of course the bar is a very you know taxated and, and economically social nationally rooted type of industry also, and so to be doing free labor in this sort of thing is totally I, I'll never work for free ever so. And, and that's not that I don't believe there are things that we that should be done for free, but within a, a, a industrial setting, within some sort of labor setting, I I can't do I can't forgive that as a labor practice when so many producers are exploited because of that.
Pronounce perfect until it appears. 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 Uh, these niggas knock off diamonds or shining But they ain't blinding No piece of bitch, I got banks in my pockets Where's the ladder I'm climbing? She gon' pop lock it and drive it Ain't talking rich, but she watching I'm the best off my jean right now. Hey, why yourself? There's no iron team right now. No way. Beating the block to the sand come up. I'm rocking gold like Russell Rush. I talk more shit than Damien does. I put the steel up in stainless cuts. I, 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 I be that young thug a thug. Throw any bitches straight off of the boat, we don't save them. Hey, her wise man told me nothing. He say don't snitch it, they get stitches. I just picked up Bentley on my kick. And I gave my bro the address to roll the riches How much you take care of How much you make care of my ladies On her worst day she had nothing like braiding But I traded it to keep shell cases Yeah, I just love me, love me, love me Yeah, hey, hey, she love me, she love me, love me for dad Yeah, she love it, I'm honest, she love it, yeah so bitch, she can't lose that Thugger Hey What? Hey, yeah, yeah Sing yeah, 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 yeah Yeah That's how you do it, nigga Oh That's how you do
I'ma do everything that I ain't did Plus, bro, they say that bitch pussy my pink as a pig For you people that are just tuning in, I'm asking you to consider the possibility of sending money directly to me because I want your money. <laughs> Send it to me, Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. I'm asking you to consider what a great thing this would be if everybody could just send something. I prefer dollar bills. Uh, they're a lot easier to handle. But uh, I will go, I would even consider just a quarter from everybody. I think anything less is uh, not worth it considering the postage involved. Uh, so I'm just asking everybody to consider the possibility, the what if, if everybody could out there could send me a quarter or more. Send it directly to me to Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. Uh, I'm not part of any religious organization, any charity. I'm not affiliated with anyone except myself. I'm a private artist, uh, just a person, and I need money. And I'm asking you to consider the possibility if you could just consider sending money uh, directly to me. That's to me, Chris Burden. 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. If you could just consider what a great thing it would be, and it would be such a small sacrifice on your part, something smaller than, uh, than a soft drink, than a candy bar even, and you could not ever feel it, but cumulatively as a group, it could really make uh, a, big, a big impression on me. Uh, that's what I want you to do. For you people uh, who are just sort of getting into this now, uh, if you could just consider doing it right now, it is a possibility. Uh, it is something to think about. If somehow everybody out there could be asked to think of sending me some money, if you could just send money to me, Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. That's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to consider the possibility of sending money to me. Uh, I don't have very much money, and I need more money. So if this could actually happen, it would be a fantastic thing if it could just be sent to me. If you can imagine sending me money, uh, I'm not selling you anything, and you don't get anything. You wouldn't get anything out of it except knowing that collectively you contributed to making one person rich. Uh, if you think about it, this can only happen if everybody sends something. It can only happen for one person, unfortunately, but it's better than not having it happen for anyone. And it doesn't really affect you very much. If you just dig in and shell out something, you wouldn't hardly feel it. If you could just imagine doing that. Now, I know that uh, some of you maybe are thinking about this, 
It is a possibility. It is something to think about, that if it could actually happen, of course it legally can happen, but uh, I can't legally ask you to do this, but I'm suggesting the possibility. I'm suggesting that you think about it as something that could happen in other places, other times. If uh, you could just think about sending me money that as, a, as an actual thing that could happen, if everybody could send me just a quarter, or, well, I wished, I'd hope that some people would send more, you know, in dealing and considering their wealth, that they would send me more to make up maybe for some people who wouldn't send any. But if everybody on the average could send about 25 cents, this would be fantastic. Uh, it would really contribute to my wealth. My name again is Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, and I'm asking you to send me money. Uh, to think of sending me money, think of what a great thing it would be if they could be sent directly to me. Uh, I'm not part of a religion or a charity, or I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just trying to bring up the possibility, the idea that everybody could send me some money. Just to consider this possibility, if you could just send it to me, to Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. If you could consider this, uh, something I've thought about a lot, and uh, it could really happen if everybody thought about it and was something they could do. Uh, if, if you could think of, ha of it happening all across the country, it's a great, great feeling to think of everybody just sending in a quarter or more. You could send it to me, to Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. That's what I want you to do tonight, is to consider sending money to me, to think of this as a real possibility. Um, if you could just do it, just think of doing it anyway, just think of sending money to me. Chris Burden, 823 Oceanfront Walk, Venice, California, 90291. Now that's what I'm asking tonight. Uh, if you're tuned out and you're coming back in, I'm still asking you to consider this possibility, to think of it happening, to imagine it happening, that people could send me money directly. Uh, there's no reason why they couldn't. That's what I'm asking you to think about. To, to, to think about everybody who's listening tonight to send some sort of money to me directly. And that is going to bring this episode to an end. No you do not need to send me money or even consider it at this point. But I do want to thank Eric for coming down to Mankato and performing here on the show and sticking around to chat for a while. I'd also like to thank Garino Mazzola for taking time out of his evening to chat with Eric and me. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this episode, you can head over to freeformfreakout.com or if you have any questions for me, you can always get in touch at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, thanks so much for listening.